0: April and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. This episode of Anchored is brought to you by Lost River Outpost. Lost River Outpost is a mom-and-pop online sportsman shop that works hard to satisfy customers' needs. From well-known brands to the new up-and-comers, they thoroughly check the quality of their goods, working only with reliable manufacturers so that customers receive the best quality products. Lost River Outpost has made it their mission to pave an easy path for people to get started in the sport. And they pride themselves in helping customers make the best decisions when it comes to choosing the gear you need to enjoy your time in the wild. Customer satisfaction is top priority at Lost River Outpost, and they hope you will enjoy their products as much as they enjoy making them available to you. Personally, I find their shop refreshing and exciting. They even carry new gear I've never heard of, but that I sure would like in my tackle room. They are currently offering free shipping on all orders over $100, and for the Anchored community, they are even taking 20% off all orders that use the coupon code ANCHORED. Be sure to go to LostRiverOutpost.com to check out their brands, customer service, and articles. Shops like this help to keep our industry feeling close-knit and personable. Please show them some support by following their pages on social media. and Don't forget to check out their website. Joe Brooks. The man has always been somewhat of a mythical figure to me. So when I had the opportunity to sit down with his great nephew to discuss a recent documentary they were making about him, I jumped at the chance. In this episode, we discuss Joe's life leading up to his career as an angler, and we break down his timeline from start to finish. I hope you enjoy this special sneak peek into Joe's life here on Anchored.
1: I was born and raised in Baltimore, Maryland, uh, in the United States.
0: Okay. (laughs) End of story. (laughs) End
1: of story. Well, there's not a lot there, really. I mean, I come from a big family, pretty standard childhood, all that sort of thing. But yeah, Baltimore.
0: Now, obviously, you're not Joe Brooks, uh, born in 1901 Joe Brooks. (laughs) Tell me about who... Joe Brooks is to you.
1: Well, that's a that's a huge question. That's
0: um, I mean, from a bloodline stance.
1: Okay, so from a bloodline stance, uh, my great grandfather was Joe Brooks. His fourth child was Joe Brooks, and Joe and Mary never had any children. And my parents must have run out of names, <laughs> so <laughs> so they said, "Hey, do you mind if we name you know after you and, and uh, grand, grandpa or whatever they used to call him?" And that's where my name came from. Was from. My great-grandfather, and from uh, Uncle Joe.
0: So there's Joe Brooks running around everywhere right that's now. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm sitting here not just because you obviously have the same name and there's Bloodline. Yeah. I'm sitting here because you're doing an incredible project on Joe Brooks. Yeah. So And not yourself, obviously. Yeah. But. So just for the record, everyone knows we're talking about your, he's technically your great-uncle?
1: Great-uncle, that's right.
0: Okay. What's this project that you're doing?
1: Well, in a nutshell, and then we'll we'll break
0: it down after that.
1: Okay, all right. So we're we're creating a documentary about Joe and Mary too, because it's it's a bit of a a tag team. There, they're very close. Uh, Mary was his third wife, and they those two had a really special bond and relationship that I think made his career what it was. But the documentary is basically to to remind everybody. Maybe dust off Joe's name a bit and just say, hey, you know, you guys, all you fishermen out there that are doing great things, and that's fantastic, that's awesome, but you know what? There's a lot of other people that came before you, and Joe is one of those people, and he did some amazing things that you may not be aware of. And this documentary is a bit about that, just to show where he came from, who he was, when he was doing it, what he was using when he was doing these amazing feats, and just remind everybody that, you know, not everything that is, is uh, new hasn't been done before. <laughs>
0: right. And, you know, a large part of this show is is based around that same concept. And so, it's so refreshing to find you, because obviously Joe's gone, so I, mm. can't, I couldn't get to him, in, in a <laughs> sense, bef- you know, before he passed. Yeah. And You've obviously been doing your research for this documentary, so I'm going to just suck as much knowledge out of you as I can, if you don't mind. No, go for it. Let's start a little bit with where he was born Mm -hmm. and what year that was. Well, I know it was 1901, but I'll just let you kind of take his timeline, if you don't mind.
1: Yep. So Joe was born um, in 1901. Like I said, he was the fourth child of his father, Joseph Brooks. His father... his first wife died in childbirth. Then he remarried, um, and he had two more children, which were uh, Joe and my grandfather. And Joe and my grandfather were very close, and they looked pretty much exactly the same, and they were they were very much, uh, yeah, very much the same in many ways. Anyway, so Joe was born uh, in Baltimore. He was a gifted athlete, and he was with the Baltimore Orioles. Uh, In those days, the Baltimore Orioles were a second division pro team type of thing. He was signed for them. They wanted him to play for them. And this team went on to win in that division, in that semi-pro division. They went on to win in those next years, seven straight titles, let's say. But Babe Ruth was also signed to this team to give you an idea of the level that Joe was at baseball-wise. This is the same team that Babe Ruth was scouted to by the exact same guy, and sold by this guy up to Boston five years before Joe,
0: and that also gives us a, a timeline. Yeah, that's
1: up? right. So you know, this guy knew players, and Joe was a pitcher like Babe Ruth was back oh, he in those was. days. Okay. Yes.
0: Okay, this is all starting to make sense. Yeah,
1: he was a flinger. He was, as they called him, a flinger.
0: A lot of great casters are pitchers. Well, there
1: you go. He was a pitcher, but his dad said no, 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 because they the Brookses were of society in those days.
0: Oh, okay. Yes. Well, does that mean that fly fishing was part of society in those days? Was he, was his dad an avid angler?
1: No, no. Okay, no, nobody in the family fished. Oh, just, just Joe. I don't know. He he was fishing at a young age, and like a, uh, he was fishing with this fellow Tom Loving back in the twenties. So he would have been, say, in twenty two, he would have been twenty one or twenty nineteen, so on and so forth. But we know from that point that he was fishing. We don't know much about the earlier days. We do know that he said in one of his books that he was a traditional trout fisherman through and through. Right. At an early age. So that would have been the, um, the whole Catskill scene.
0: Right, but not from his dad. No. Because yeah. back then... I'm kind of thinking royalty days, but remember when fly fishing was an elite, you know, high society mm. sport or pastime?
1: Mm.
0: Was it an elite pastime in the early 1900s?
1: It was. It was not many. You got to think too. You you have to look at the historical context too. Mm. In those days, the early 1900s were coming up into the 20s, where America is burgeoning, right? Then you go into the Great Depression, which yeah, 30s, it slides yeah. down, and then you come up to the war. And it starts coming out again. Right. It's not till after the war that the general public is now aware of this thing. And they're probably maybe loosely aware of it, but it's not until after the war that there's these millions and millions and millions of servicemen and women that have come back from the war and now they're interested in this getting outdoors. They've got jobs. They're making plenty of money. Now they have spare time. Where before then, everybody's working, 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 and there is no spare time. There is no spare money. You can't afford to buy fly fishing gear because it's too expensive. And it's probably all from England, all the hardy stuff, right?
0: Yeah. So what did his dad want him to do then if it wasn't baseball and it probably wasn't fishing?
1: Definitely wasn't though. Well, he went to Princeton and he got kicked out of Princeton.
0: What for?
1: <laughs> we don't know why he got kicked out, but he was only there for th- three months, I think, and he got oh, kicked no. out. Oh,
0: no. Okay.
1: So clearly that wasn't for him.
0: Was he a bit of a bad boy?
1: Well, he was deaf Well, we don't know enough to answer. I can't answer that, you know, categorically. But sure, he his dad didn't want him playing baseball, right? Mm-hmm. And he said that's not the right thing to do, even though he had all the talent and, and that type of thing. But I think they wanted because the Brooks has had a, an insurance company. I think they wanted everybody to you know, as the family businesses go, right? Mm. They wanted young Joe and young Ray, who that was my grandfather, to be in the business. And my grandfather didn't. He retired in the business, but Joe was not going to have a bar of it. And my father retired in the business. So it's this whole typical, you know, small business type of mentality type of thing, yeah.
0: So Joe never moved forward with baseball because of his father?
1: Well, yes and no, because what happened was when, because he was 17 when he was signed up with the Orioles, His father died when he was 18. Oh, no. Yes, he had a massive heart attack. So what that meant for Joe, I'm free. So he went back to pitching. Because of his athleticism, we can trace him around America.
0: Wow, I never really thought about it like that, but totally. Yeah,
1: because he's doing these amazing things, and they're popping up in the papers all around the country. So we have articles from these papers up in the Adirondacks where he's pitching these no-hitters to the team that just won the division the year before and he's, you know, he's pitching them out, not just once, but he's doing it twice. And he's, he's also fishing while he's up there, of course. <laughs> of course he is. Yeah, yeah, so it's pretty funny, but we can track him and he's playing golf and he's boxing and he's, you know, you see him knocking people out or he's, he's just hit a uh, shot of 65 somewhere or, and he's playing in these tournaments and his name just keeps popping up.
0: What happened with his baseball career?
1: Well, it pretty much just ended there. We, you know, it's in the, it would have been in the 20s. And he was pitching for a team up in the Adirondacks, I'm pretty sure. Uh, I'd have to go dig it all out again. But I don't know exactly, but it just fizzled out. And then we get into the Great Depression, and, and we sort of lose track of him. But that's when he's, in, he's moved into his alcoholism. And we're not sure what any of the catalysts were for, for any of that. But that's when he starts heading down this very, very, very dark path to the bottom.
0: So no one has any idea what drove him there?
1: No, because it's so. You know, we're looking through a, a glass that's quite fogged up. You know, you're trying to clean it off and get a, a better view, and and you're doing a bit of guess guesswork and hoping that you can put these pieces of the puzzle together.
0: Well, how do you guys know about the alcoholism?
1: Well, that's that's quite quite well documented. My father would tell us. I mean, you know, you imagine again. There's ten of us sitting around the dinner table and. And my granddad lived with us for years too as well. And um, so it's 11 around the dinner table. And my dad would often say, well, you know, somehow Uncle Joe would come up for some strange reason and he'd say, yeah, well, my grandfather, my uh, Uncle Joe would get chucked into jail or he was in trouble in a pub somewhere because he, he was a big guy.
0: So he's fighting.
1: He was beating the crap out of people. Yeah. He sounds when like he's, a bad boy. He's a very, very bad out of boy. he to college,
0: three wives, drinking, yeah, alcoholism.
1: He's definitely a bad boy. He's
0: a bad boy, yeah. And he's
1: big. And he, he, he can fight. And he, we even have this one snippet. He went to the uh, recruiter's office for the First World War. And he was 15. Yeah, he was trying to sign up to go- Early. Yeah. Yeah. And he was trying to sign up. And the recruiter said, oh, you're- he, The recruiter called him a name saying you're too young. But he was so, such a big guy. You'd be hard to know. So he smacked him. <gasps> knocked him to the ground. No. Yeah. And then he was, then he was hauled off before the courts- And his father was with him, not at the time, but his father was with him in the courts and said, you know, we apologize to the recruiter that Joe just, and Joe was 15 when he spanked this recruiter.
0: No, obviously this isn't in any of his books or anything, right? No, 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 no. This
1: isn't even even in the, no, we have, we have records of it. It's not even lore, it's it's truth. (laughs) We do, we have records. We have the court records.
0: That is In digging
1: up all this, but this isn't in the DACA, so this is new. (laughs) Surprise. (laughs) Surprise.
0: Well, just before I go back to Joe's life, how did you get all of your information?
1: Okay, so way back when when I started, when we started this project, like I'd never read much of uh, Uncle Joe's work. So I started reading and go, man, this is really good. Mm. I mean, he's actually a good writer. And I was really surprised because these sat... Because my granddad lived with us, as I said before, and these books used to sit on his bookshelf in his study that he had. And I remember looking at them, and, but we'd never read them. Then when I started digging into these books, because I thought maybe there's people still alive and I can contact them, which is funny because my, my journey has gone like a spokes around a wheel, around the world, running into people because of looking at these books and then tracing them down. So that was one, one area. And then when we hired the director, the director hired this guy called Tom Perro.
0: Oh, I know Tom. Yeah, you know Tom. He's also been on the show. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> good to know I'm on the right track. <laughs> and,
1: yeah, exactly. And Tom's fantastic. Like he turned over just about every stone you could turn over to find out. His research was impeccable, absolutely impeccable. And he found out all this stuff. We didn't ever knew any of this.
0: Wow.
1: Yeah, and we didn't know because we lose Joe in the 30s, and I think a lot of men. When the depression hit, there was no work, and and most you you don't understand. I don't understand. My dad doesn't understand. Right? Well, he might closer, but anyway, you know what I mean. Because none of us lived through it, we don't understand it. And there's so many people out of work that none of us could imagine. It's never been like that since. And um,
0: he would have been in his thirties then.
1: He would have been, yeah, yeah. But his
0: did did he have dependents?
1: No, no. Did he ever have children? No. Oh, okay. Never had children. No. No, his... Uh, well, anyway, yeah, we'll get there. But um, so he, we lose him, but we, he would pop up sport-wise. He took up golf. And then, yeah, he just takes up golf. And he starts winning these tournaments, or he takes up boxing, or he takes up... What was the other sport? People have said that they've watched him bowl. What, he shot a 300 game? I'm not sure what that means, but I think that's like strikes all the time.
0: Okay, <laughs> I have no idea.
1: <laughs> but people were mesmerized by his his sporting...
0: Ability, ability, and you're able to find all of this in in
1: yeah, just popping up in newspapers around the country.
0: That is incredible.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Okay, so okay, well, let's go back to the timeline then.
1: Well, if we go back, we know that he married again. He had three wives, so we tra And my dad, my dad goes, you know, I know that's that second wife, Connie, because I remember my my grandma talking about her, and and we couldn't find Connie. We could find the first wife, Arlene, because she was a socialite too. I mean, she was like. um High society, let's say, and he was living high on the hog with her.
0: When his dad passed, did he inherit a lot of money?
1: No, no, no. Because his wife was still, you know, Molly, the second wife was still alive. Okay. You know, all of that was still going, and they were living in Baltimore, and I think all of that would have gone.
0: Okay, so he didn't. He didn't continue with the high society life.
1: No, okay. no. Okay. When he married Arlene, he did because Wait. she, her dad was high society, and she was getting lots of money
0: on her side. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So he was fishing playing golf, and drinking. And this is the 20s, the Roaring 20s, remember? Right. So it's a party leading up to the Great Depression.
0: Oh, oh, everything is just aligning to not
1: point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, got it. That's right. So I think after four years, I think she'd had enough of yeah. Joe's gallivanting, and they divorce. I don't know exactly when he remarries, but he marries another gal by the name of Connie. That's That's got to be before, because he must still be a drunk, because... We know he graduated from the sanatorium, Wood Sanatorium, it's called, up in Toronto, I believe. But he, I'm not sure if the family funded him because they didn't want him part of the family. He was ostracized from the family because of his drinking. Oh, no. Dragging the, well, they didn't want him anywhere near the business or anything like that. So he was doing these odd jobs, I think, but, but he had sunk... Very, 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 very low through his drinking and alcoholism.
0: What was your grandpa doing? That would have been hard on him. He
1: was working uh, in the Baltimore, but in to, Baltimore, in the in the insurance company. But to bring
0: Joe back, I mean, I don't, I can't imagine back then they would have sat him down for an intervention. No, people have figured out by now he's gone through to rehab.
1: Yes. Uh,
0: do you? Is there more leading up to that, or are we still about to land in rehab?
1: Well, the leading up to it is there's this guy. I can't remember his exact name, but he's writing this outdoor column for the Delaware something or other. And he clearly knew who Joe was. And he writes this veiled description of Joe. And he calls Joe Ted. 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 Just as a pseudonym, because he doesn't want to name him. And he describes this person called Ted. And he's talking about Joe and how terrible this person is. He's panhandling for money. Anything he can get to get booze, he's not eating. Everything that he gets, his, his clothes are all tattered, He looks forlorn. He's Every scent that he has is for alcohol. He is the bum that your mind can conjure up, that you would walk past a thousand times. Mm -hmm.
0: No kidding. So how did you guys get your hands on that article?
1: Research it all.
0: But how do you know that Ted is Joe?
1: We know because in Joe's scrapbook that we have, or we have a copy of, the same guy writes... Uh, when joe gets the um he gets uh, the job at the met or he gets something something fantastic happens to him and he writes to him well done joe you know fantastic you know so this guy never clearly gave up on joe
0: oh that's amazing it is it's pretty cool obviously joe is at his lowest point as low yeah. as low gets and he's actually a bum i mean did he have somewhere to live at night or to stay at night
1: well we don't know all the details cuz everything's so gray and dark and but what we could see from here is he is that, like I said, that person that you would walk past and you would just look at him and go, you just shake your head at, and so that shows you the, you know, the change the guy made. It's incredible. Yeah, we're
0: about to get really inspiring here. That's the whole point. So, just I want my listener to realize, like this is this is going to be a tale of yeah. inspiration. Let's go from there.
1: So this rehab is again. In society in those days, they saw alcoholism as a, um, a social problem, not a disease. So it's a completely different mindset than it is today. But this place, this wood sanatorium, didn't. They were miles ahead of their time. And what they were doing, which is interesting, is they were trying to change the association you had with alcohol to something incredibly negative, which is best practice today. And this was back in 1937, 1937. And Joe never drank again from that point.
0: This is incredible. So where does he go from there? He gets out of rehab, he's free from the demon rum.
1: That's it. And he comes back to Maryland. Okay. Okay. So now you have a different Joe. Totally. Right? So now he wants to make good.
0: Right. So and he's, he's still really young at this point.
1: Well, <laughs> not when you're 25, but yeah, he's 30, he's 30 uh he's 38 I'd say. I think it's 38 when he graduates, so he must be 37.
0: Yeah, so he's still really young.
1: Still pretty young. Yeah. So he's a young man. He's gone through two, two marriages, and he comes back to Maryland, and he somehow gets a job with the Maryland State Game and Fish Protection Association, and he begins to get involved in that. And I don't think it was a job that you get paid for. I think it was more a volunteer type of scenario. Mm-hmm. Part of that, he created this a publication for youngsters, right? So he was really into this next generation and teaching the next generation at a very early age and before anybody was ever doing it.
0: He wanted to help people.
1: Yeah, he wanted to help people. He knew he had cocked up his life, something chronic, and he really wanted to make amends.
0: Now that I know his past, Mm -hmm. a little bit more about his past. Yeah, his
1: future makes perfect sense. It
0: makes so much sense. Yeah,
1: so he goes and he gets involved in that and he's helping youngsters by putting this publication out. And he's slowly getting his writing going, and I'm not sure how he got into writing, quite frankly, because really he only had a high school education. He didn't last at Princeton very long. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, it may have had to do with rehab. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, maybe it was his therapy. You'd
1: maybe. Have to ask yeah. Him, Who knows? Yeah, yeah. Where you write stuff out? Yeah.
0: Yeah. When you were doing all of your research, where did your research trail take you as far as his writing goes? Could you find any early pieces?
1: We know that he did do that publication. For the the youth that were involved in the Maryland State Game and Fish Association. And then from there, we see him writing for some local publications in northern Baltimore.
0: That's all post-rehab.
1: Post-rehab. Did you guys find
0: anything pre-rehab?
1: No, no. Oh, no writing. Interesting. No, I think he spent 10 years drinking.
0: And where does he go from there?
1: So from there, his star slowly starts to rise as his writing, because you you think back, okay, let's just take a pause and look at the world scene. Where are we, right? What's America look like at that time? So it's 1939, 1940. We're not even up to, I mean, the Second World War has begun in Europe, but not for the Americans per se. And so we're leading up to that. So he's writing loosely, but he's fishing a lot because that's what he loves. And that's what he's loved as a child, right? And so he's just going back to that. And we all know the therapy of being outdoors and being uh, on a mountain and the water and the trees. And it's just fantastic.
0: Did he have a mentor?
1: Well, you know, not per se, but I think Tom Loving would have been his mentor. I think, and that was through the 20s. So he was still, he was drinking through then and, and Tom Loving basically got him into fishing into the brine and into the salt. And I think that probably would have been the one person maybe that was around that was in the fishing side, his personal life, I have no idea. So Joe's writing, and he's again, he's, and I just want to, for, for all the listeners out there, when you're an alcoholic, that's a battle you fight every day. So that's something we just have to file back and, and beware of, that just because Joe graduated doesn't mean it's not going to be with him every day. So that's a battle he fought every day. And that's pretty impressive to think about. When he got out of bed that morning, he had a battle to fight where most of us get out of bed, brush your teeth, have a shower, do whatever you do. We're not thinking about having a drink. No. And he did. So it's miles different from the majority of the people out there listening to this. So Joe, we're coming up to the war. Joe um, enlists again. (laughs) He's 40 years old. He joins the Coast Guard. He's uh, on a boat uh, up and down the Potomac, and most people his age, and this comes out in the documentary, have desk jobs, but he takes a job on a boat to run the patrols up and around the Potomac and out um out down through the Chesapeake, and perfect territory for him because he already knew all about it because he'd been fishing it for years. Right.
0: And he was fishing for stripers. Yeah, stripers. Even back then.
1: Yeah, and shad too. As if you go further up the Chesapeake up into the uh, Susquehanna,
0: he's way ahead of the game.
1: Yeah, and and he's loving it, you know, because you know back then there wasn't a lot of pressure. And on a fly rod, a striper is just insane. And, and that's like, when you read his publications, when you read his books, that's one of his all-time favorite fish to catch because those, those stripers are just nasty.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and they
1: take, they take a popper like there's no tomorrow, and he just loves that, that topwater fishing where you can watch it all happen.
0: Right. Was he working and fishing at the same time?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting you ask that question. We have um, Project he- Healing Waters, right? After the war... What is it? Um, Walter Reed Hospital down in Bethesda is the military hospital. Well, Joe was taking guys out that had come back from the war fishing.
0: Ah. Wow, he really was set on changing lives.
1: And changing his life. Wow. Yeah, and and he was involved, too, up in... um Grace has a... Uh, approving grounds up there and stuff like that. And he was also involved with the soldiers. There must have been something up there because we have records of him involved helping these guys, taking them on these fishing trips. And the one lady, and it's through an, it's through an organization like the Red Cross or something like that. Mm. And she sends him this letter going, you know, you're bringing all the rods, bringing all the reels. You brought everything for these guys, and you made it a perfect time for them. It was really.
0: Oh, that's all right. You can get choked up. <laughs>
1: Well, it's just—it's
0: incredible. It's truly incredible. Yeah.
1: So it's just amazing to think about what we chatted before about how terrible he had been. Yeah. It's
0: just—it's—it's it's so inspiring. I really want people listening to this to just—you know—you just—I'll—I'll I'll save you here. Um, Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> well, I had uh, my best friend on the show, Adrian Kamosh. She suffers from depression, and she wanted right. to come out and talk about it. And the amount of people who come out of the woodwork, who are at their all-time lows, who need to hear the stories of inspirational people, it's shocking to me. So you just never know who's going to hear this right now, who (laughs) needs to hear that they can be that guy, they can be Ted. Yeah. And end up changing lives, not just your own, but other people's too.
1: Yeah, thousands and thousands of people.
0: How, and, and I didn't know any of this. Yeah. And I, I don't think
1: Joe wrote about any of this. No. Did he?
0: No, because he didn't want to be. He obviously wasn't doing it for
1: recognition. No, and Lefty says this documentary, right? Lefty was pushing it harder than any of us. Yeah, yeah. But he said, Joe is the one person who would not want this to be done. Sorry, Joe. Because <laughs> that's not his, that's not the way he was. His whole thing was helping others. He wanted to give back because that. He just saw himself as that youngster that did such horrible things and he just, he just wanted to change the world.
0: Talk about a turnaround, huh? Um, let's continue on his timeline.
1: So, okay, so now we're at the war and he's on this patrol boat as part of the, the Coast Guard of, uh, up and down the Potomac, down into the Chesapeake. The war ends. He's helping with some of these rehab through the, the fishing. He's still involved in the Maryland State Fish and Game Association and you have all these soldiers coming back you know there was 13 million soldiers in Europe
0: and so many of them turned to alcohol so he'd really be able to help these guys.
1: Well it's interesting you say that as well because we had this um we had this letter from Mary from Aunt Mary saying how these guys just used to rock up at his door asking for help. Ah. Oh. Because he'd been there, right?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So so anyway, so the war ends. These guys, all the soldiers, come home, and a lot of them are from rural, and America's rural pretty much at the, in those days, right? And so they all come home, and they're all outdoorsmen generally, you know, and and they wanna they wanna get back outdoors. Yeah. And so Joe starts to to write, and he's writing for this this paper in um, in Towson, and I, I can't remember the name of it, but he's writing this column called Pools and Ripples, and that's when that's when things start going, and then we're sort of moving into when he meets Mary because that's when everything changes.
0: And this is his third and final?
1: Third and final.
0: Life?
1: Yeah, and that's when everything really coalesces.
0: Yeah, because he's himself too and a good woman to a man who's found himself. I mean, it's a perfect combination. It
1: is a perfect combination. And it's so perfect because she was the uh, head of tourism for the province of Quebec.
0: Oh. So
1: she's got all the tools. She's Canadian? Yeah.
0: Okay, just making sure. (laughs)
1: That's right, tip for the Canadians. (laughs) So she she has all the tools, yeah. right? And Joe's got all this fantastic ability and experience, and he's a good writer, right? So he's writing this column, and the Outdoor Writers Association are having a conference in Florida, and Joe wants to go to this conference. So he tells his boss to hold back his money and save some for me so I can go to this conference. And he does, and Joe goes. And the whole idea of these conferences, these uh, Outdoor Writers of Association conferences were for... Um, places around the country to get writers to go to their place and write about it and draw create tourism for the area. And so Joe got on one of these tours up to Alaska. And so he goes to Alaska and he's writing all about it back in his column at Pools and Ripples. And he's starting to get a bit of a a little bit of a falling not much just you know it's really early early days for Joe. Yeah. So we're looking at probably we're up to 46 47. So he's 46 years old let's say. Okay. So he's not not super young, right? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> My husband's 46. <laughs> yeah. Well, you think he started his career when he was 37 years old. Right, yeah. That's kind of late. Yeah. Just saying. Right. <laughs> right? So it's 46, 47. Mary's at this conference, too. Okay. And they must have maybe met, but she was putting this group together to go up to Quebec. To go all around the province fishing and hunting.
0: What? Okay.
1: So she, she gathers the 10 best writers of the day and gets them to go up there. That's what her group was, 10 of them. And Joe doesn't get on the uh, tour. And so he comes back from Alaska, and he gets this uh, telegram from Mary saying, somebody's pulled out. Do you want to go?
0: <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> so something must have been, because Joe was nobody. So there must have been something. I'm not, we, you know, again, we, we... Maybe Mary was mixing some pleasure with business. <laughs> or she needed glasses, I don't know. Or maybe he was just number 11. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Who knows? That's right, we don't know, that's right. So anyway, somebody pulls out, she goes, hmm, I like that Joe. maybe I'll ask him. Right. And so she does. And she basically is uh, the tour guide for him all the way around Quebec, fishing and hunting. How? Oh. And that's where the romance started. But... I had met Mary, so when I was 16, I thought, oh, I better go and meet Aunt Mary. So I went, 15 or 16, doesn't matter. But anyway, I flew out to Arizona where she was living. And she, she did tell me that she had done her research on, you know, once she, you know, the sparks were maybe flying a bit, she had done her research and she knew this was a bit of a gamble. Yeah, yeah. So just so everybody knows that it just wasn't, you know, all in, she, she, she was going to look around and make sure. That, Dipped her
0: tone. Yeah, first, that's
1: yeah. right. And so that really began.
0: This is the days before you could just Google stock yeah. potential partner.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's no, not a lot of research smart, done here. A smart woman yeah. so back
0: back then to to look around. Yeah. But she took a gamble.
1: She took a big gamble. And what are we up to? We're up to probably getting into 47, 48, and that's when he got the job, somehow some way, as the head of the Metropolitan South Florida South Florida Metropolitan Fishing Tournament. Okay. And so Joe's moving down. To Florida, he's living in Baltimore at the time. He's he's moving down to Florida to run the Met in '49, and they get married. I'm pretty sure they got married in '49 at Jimmy Albrecht's place. Jimmy Albright. Listen to this. I have
0: heard of Jimmy Albright, but I didn't. Yeah. I couldn't put two and two together. Yeah.
1: Listen to this. So when Jimmy, okay, you ever heard of the Sass sisters? No. <laughs> You'll love this man. These women are guns. There's two sisters, the Sass sisters. There's Frankie and there's um, Bonnie. Mm-hmm. Bill Smith, who also is a, uh, a a top South Florida guide, Bill Smith marries Bonnie yeah, and uh, Jimmy Albright marries uh Frankie
0: there's a, a pair of sisters who are guides in
1: florida they they guided during the war when the boys were off. no, and yes I must get more information yes these guys these two women Joe when Joe lands the first permit yes uh Frankie's with them
0: Oh, I've got to get okay. Frankie's
1: guiding Joe. When, when uh, the first permit ever called on a fly is landed. And you know how she does it? Joe goes, Joe's, Joe's got the, the permit on. You know what? They're crazy, right? Yeah. And she goes, or he goes to her, can you grab the net? And she goes, well, I didn't bring, I didn't bring a net. net. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, Joe's wearing it out and it's doing circles around the boat or whatever. And, and, fi- and she goes, finally, it comes, you know, side up and she just reaches down and picks it up by the tail. Oh, <laughs>
0: Okay, you have to understand, my. I know the history as best I can at yeah. this particular point in my life yeah. in the freshwater world, and I'm slowly, slowly learning the history in the saltwater world. But you're telling me that Joe Brooks caught the first permit, known permit, on the fly and was guided by a woman in Florida who was guiding
1: there with her sister when the men went off to war? Well, sort of. When the men were off to war, the women were guiding, and they were fantastic Fisher women. Well, of course they were. Exactly, exactly <laughs> yeah. right, right? But nobody knows about these women. These two guys that became the top guides in South Florida and are in the pantheon of South Florida uh, guides. Married the sisters. Married the sisters. Oh,
0: amazing.
1: And and during the 50s, they used to have this project permit, it was called. Okay. And they went to wherever they went to in Florida, I think. And all you could do, because they knew a permit could be caught on a, well, Joe had a hunch that a per- permit could be caught on a fly because it hadn't been done before. Because they were trolling lures that had feathers on them. So he he figured, well, they'll take a fly then. And so they did this thing in the 50s for year after year after year. And they could get a permit to take. They just couldn't land the bloody thing. Yeah, (laughs) Because the gear and all that, right, that just wasn't up to to scratch. And they were constantly, slowly working out how to do this. And that's when we get to that point where the first permit caught... He's guided by Frankie Albright, and she, she lands it by the tail. She picks it up by the tail, not even by that.
0: How incredible it is, is that? It
1: is. It is. Wow. And what's cool too is Joe doesn't have a hint of ego because he writes all of this and he tells it just like I've just told it. Yeah, yeah. He's not saying, look how great I am. Right. <laughs> He's saying, I couldn't believe it. I was so upset that she didn't bring them there. Yeah. And you can see him writing. He's ticked off with her for not bringing. Right. <laughs> it's just funny. It's wow. so funny. But yeah, it's amazing. There's so many of these gems that people don't know about.
0: You know? I had no idea. Is yeah. any of that in his books?
1: He he talks about these women all the time. Like Mary is a gun fisherman. but she, But she didn't grow up fishing. She never heard of fly fishing. And she learned how to fly fish on the flats in Florida with Joe. That's know?
0: so cool. Okay. Yeah.
1: They were married at Jimmy's place. Got it. Wow. And the who's who of the fishing world were there. Right. Doesn't say, but that's how it's that's how it's uh, illustrated. The who's who of the fly fishing world were at Joe's wedding. Joe and Mary's wedding. Right. Yeah.
0: When was Ted Williams around?
1: During that time.
0: Were they I mean they've got such a similar I they don't know were if your story, but yeah,
1: baseball and Ted Ted and Ted and Joe were buddies. They were. Mm.
0: All right. So what happened after that?
1: Okay, so uh, so Joe Joe gets married.
0: And no kids, they never
1: Never so they have kids. No, they never had um, children. Mary might have. Well, Mary was much younger than Joe. Not much younger, but she was f- several years younger. Okay. Well, Joe's busy running the metropolitan uh, fishing tournament, and he's getting to know all the people, all the guides. When he's, you say
0: tournament, though, I always think of the tournament being like a once a year event. What was this? Tournament? It goes for months. Okay.
1: Yeah, it goes for months.
0: And it was obviously enough to give him a full time job.
1: It was well. It was a full time job for half the year.
0: Okay, so he could spend the other half <laughs> fishing and writing about it.
1: Yeah, or, or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's where we get into Montana, but that's again, that's further, further up the path. We'll get there. But what happens that's that's crucial in this this time? There's a couple things that happen that's crucial in this time. Is one, um, Alan Corazon, who was the editor of the Miami Herald, I believe, or the outdoor editor, something like that, the Miami, Miami Herald. He says because a, a bonefish had not been caught. A bonefish had been caught before then, right? But it had been caught by accident, not deliberately. Okay. So Jimmy, Albright, and Joe are deliberately going out to see if they can catch a, a bonefish on a fly. And Alan Corazon says this is going to happen. And then they go out and they catch two tailing bonefish, eight and 10 pounds or whatever they were. And then the next day, the big headline is, They caught the bonefish, right? And this is basically the explosion, the the absolute, somebody just lit this bomb,
0: Uh
1: and you can see the, you know, (laughs) boom. This is the very, 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 very beginning of bonefishing.
0: Okay. Wow, it's not that old when you think about it.
1: No, it's not that old. Not compared to freshwater fly fishing.
0: Exactly, and then permit fishing came after. Yes. It's too bad they weren't filming any of this back then. Was Joe filming at that point?
1: No, but that's where the American Sportsman is so good.
0: Okay, let's go there.
1: Well, you think it's ABC Sports, yeah, and they're using the best of the best gear, right? So everything is fantastic, but that's up into the 60s because the first pilot was done in 1963- as a fishing tournament. Well,
0: hold on, let me just back you up a bit. Yeah. He, so what, he's married at this point. Okay, let's just he's, where where are we at in the timeline? I'd the say we're 50s? at forty
1: nine, just coming, just peeking into fifty. He's just married Mary at okay. Jimmy Albright's house. Yeah. They've just caught officially or unofficially, whatever you want to call it, uh, the first bonefish. Yeah. Or deliberately first caught the first bonefish, which is now going to create this absolute explosion. Bum. Yeah. Of. Of uh, of bonefish fishing, right? And Joe's writing about. It. Remember, he's writing, right? Of course, he is. He's writing, and that and that's the thing with with Joe is because he was pro- he was the right guy with all the talent at the right place, right? He just happened to be the right guy at the right place, really. In the end of the day, and and he had the right. Demeanor too. Yeah, he wasn't about himself. It doesn't he was... sound
0: like he was doing this to be the first man ever to catch this and that. No. There's a lot of personalities in our history who've spent a lot of time doing firsts for an ego yeah. or for for history books. But it sounds like he was just doing it because he was there at the right time and he loved it, and then he wrote about it.
1: Yeah, and okay. and he's slowly getting this following. Like Mark Sosen says, um, at a certain point in time, if Joe wrote it, it was gospel truth. You know, and that comes out in the film too. Like if he's writing it. I want to do it.
0: Coming up, Joe and I continue our conversation. Again, thank you so much to Lost River Outpost for making this episode possible. Lost River Outpost stands by exceptional high quality customer service, but most importantly, they believe shopping is a right, not a luxury, so they strive to deliver the best products at the right prices and ship them to you on time. Check them out at LostRiverOutpost.com and be sure to use coupon code ANCHORED for 20% off as well as free shipping.
1: So we're, we're nudging into the 50s and this big article comes out and then he's over in Coos Bay in Oregon and he catch a 30 pound striper. That's the, like the biggest... 30-pound striper. striper. It was a world record. Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On a, on a popping bug, on, a, on a, what he called his Brooks skipping bug, right? Okay. And I can show you one. They're down in my office, but they're, um, they're probably about that long. And he said he, he hooked a bigger one before that. but that You can read the article that he writes about it. But what, what I'm getting at is he's doing these amazing things, and he's writing about it. And slowly, you know, these soldiers back to the war have come back, and they're outdoorsmen, and they're reading this stuff. Of course. And now you start to see this explosion.
0: Oh, this all makes sense. Yeah. All of it makes yeah. sense. Yeah,
1: and that's why I'm saying he's just the right guy at the right it's time. Per- it's perfect. Yeah, yeah, at the right place, the right time. Yeah, it is. He gets, perfect storm. He
0: gets them. They need him. It's perfect.
1: And he's that broken guy, too. Exactly right. Okay, so he doesn't... It's not about Joe. It's not... I'm not saying he doesn't have an ego. He Of course he has an ego. Everybody does. But he also has that past that he can reflect back on right. and go... Let's try and make a difference. Let's try and make a difference. Let's try and make a difference. And that's what his, I think his MO was. Let's try and make a difference. So we're up into the 50s. He's, he's done the bonefish. He's, he's getting people's head into, oh, I can take my fly rod into the salt. Right? And he's catching this massive striper out in Oregon, which nobody had really been out to Oregon to fish for big stripers because Joe's from the East Coast, right? And he thought, oh, all the striper fishing's done in the East Coast. So we're moving through the, we're moving through the 50s. And here we have, we run into Patagonia. So here we are in in 1954, 1954. I mean, this is just, you talk about, as they say, sliding doors or whatever. This is just freaky stuff. Okay, so you can read about the history of Argentine uh, trout. There's many books out there that that talk about it and how it all happened and blah, blah, blah. So Joe meets this guy in uh, New York City because Joe is going up to... uh, he was writing in those days. Now, he'd, he'd got enough acclaim that he was writing for Outdoor Life, Field and Stream, and um, Sports Afield or something like that. Or... But there weren't many. There were three, four publications in those days, right? Yeah. So he was writing for them, and he was going up to New York, and there was this uh, outfitter shop on Lexington Avenue. And this is wintertime. This would have been, um, I can't remember, but it was snow. So clearly it's cold. Yeah. Anyway, so he goes into this shop. Well, actually, this fellow by the name of Jorge Donovan from uh, Buenos Aires has come into the shop, and he's looking around. He's talking to the guy, and he's telling them they get talking as fishermen do, right? And he's telling them about these massive trout mm. in uh, northern Patagonia, and they're like, "Yeah, oh, that's amazing!" You know, their eyes are big and everything. And he said, "You've got to come back." So Jorge goes away, and he comes back, and when he comes back, Joe's in the shop. And these two meet, and this is the absolute beginning of what everybody goes to in Patagonia to go fly fishing for big-ass trout. That's, this is the absolute beginning, and they get talking. And these two, Jorge Donovan is, if you go, um, if you go to Argentina, he is in their pantheon. There's two guys, Bibi Anchorino and Jorge Donovan. Those two are the absolute tippy-top. Jorge was a... Uh, was a landowner he he had uh, cattle and he was traveling around and he'd probably fish when he traveled as well because right and he meets joe and joe goes hey well i'm living in florida why don't you come down and we'll go fishing i'll take you out uh bone fishing and and tarpon fishing and so jorge goes okay so the next week joe's picking jorge up at the miami airport Drives him down because Joe's living in Isla Morada because he's living. He and Mary are living in Isla Morada near Jimmy's house, near Ted's house, and um, he takes him out. And Joe's guiding Jorge, but he teaches him how to double haul. He had never seen anybody double haul before. Really? Yes. So Jorge Donovan, they were fishing English style. So uh, so Bibi Anchorino and Jorge Donovan had met each other. Again, there was huge landowners and the anchorinas in in Buenos Aires and in Argentina in general are massive landowners, like massive and these two were mates and they went to school in uh, in England oh. and they would fish this very
0: R- yeah rigid, rigid
1: yes and and tight let's call it uh style of, of casting so
0: they learned that I assumed that they had learned to cast like that because the it was an Englishman who brought over the trout, wasn't it, to the Estancias?
1: To, well, no, not to To it, Argentina? Yeah, to Argentina it came- um,
0: I read about this some time ago and I- Me too. I can't quite remember, but, but regardless- But it was the turn of the century. They didn't learn from someone in Argentina. They no. had both been over in no, England.
1: Yes, those two had learned to fly fish, I believe, in England, and, and there was just a small group- that were fly fishermen. Jorge Donovan's father was a fly fisherman too. So, oh, wow. Yeah, which we learned, you know.
0: Through the documentary.
1: Yeah, that's right. So, so anyway, so Jorge and Joe, they meet. Joe invites him down. Joe picks him up, takes him bone fishing, and sees Joe cast. <laughs> and his mind is blown watching him cast. Like, so he goes back, so he catches, he catches bone fish. I don't know if he caught a tarpon, but he definitely caught bone fish because I've, I've read his writings and he talks about it. And um, he goes back to tell Bibi and some of the other guys back there, because there's not a big group of fly fishermen. And they're just blown away by these stories. They're like, nah, that can't be true. That can't be true. So Jorge wants to return the favor. So he says, Joe, come to Argentina. So in January 1955, Joe takes his Pan Am flight. You can m- imagine the milk <laughs> run, 1955.
0: How did they do the run back
1: then? That's right. These are piston, these are piston planes, right? Yeah. And so he's going Florida. <laughs> Brazil maybe I'm not sure somewhere in the islands maybe and then Brazil I'm not sure God,
0: there'd be so much hopping
1: yeah it was it was, it was a milk run it was, uh, it was definitely it was boom up and down up and down up and down up. but here's a guy who is smitten with fly fishing so they pick him up but the road I don't know if you've ever been on the road between Buenos Aires and Junín
0: I haven't but I can imagine
1: it was gravel what it would have looked like it was gravel yeah and that trip is 20 hours they go there and then, but they go right down to Terra del Fuego. Oh, okay. That's where their first stop was, all the way down there. So, the, the first day, I think Joe caught the biggest trout ever caught in Argentina at that time on a fly. It was like a 10 pound sea run brown trout. Yeah. And the biggest trout of his career, right? Yeah. Or his fishing life. And then the next day, he catches two more 13 and 12 or something like that. And that's why I wanted to go down there because they must have been talking, heard about it, go down there. And then they come back up and they're fishing in Hunin and they're fishing the Chimewin, the the Majeo, they're fishing the Kikiway, um, what's uh, the Kolonkura, you know, all the iconic, you think of Hunin, you think of all these iconic Northern Patagonia streams. But anyway, he catches this 16 and a half pound, no, or 18, 18 and a half pound brown trout on the Chimewin at the Boca. And this is where you get this Boca Fever from. So there's this huge article in Field and Dream about Boca Fever. And anyway, so he goes back and he's writing about all this. And now what's happened? We're, we're in 1955. Okay. These Americans have come back. They have jobs. They have spare cash. Joe's writing about places nobody had ever heard of or dreamed of. And now they can see that this could be my dream too. And they want to go there. And that's basically his life. He traveled all around the world fishing and creating dreams for everybody. And people followed in his footsteps. And now you go to Patagonia today, Northern Patagonia. It's an industry.
0: Oh, big time. So did he popularize it then? He was the guy.
1: He was the guy. Wow. Without him and his writing and the culmination of all these Americans coming back with now leisure time and cash. Because right? you need all of these elements for it to work.
0: Yeah, it's a perfect storm. Did he ever spend months at a time? No.
1: Well, if we're getting up to the American sportsman, right? Because in 1963, the American sportsman pilot comes on air. And that was done as a fishing tournament between two Argentines and two Americans, Kirk Gowdy and Joe Brooks.
0: Okay, tell me more about the premise of the show.
1: The premise of the show was, I believe, Kirk Gowdy went to um, Rune Aldridge, who was head of programming, I think, for ABC, and said, so this is the idea. We should do an outdoor show because we have all these Americans, back to the Americans coming back from the war. Yep. They're interested in the outdoors. And nobody's talking to the guys, right? So the programming is very limited back then. Rune goes, nah, I'm not so sure. I think it should be a tournament. Because we have to have they some- want to
0: have that sort of element of competition.
1: That's right. Competition. Yeah. And and this is like one of the first reality shows.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it, it is.
1: Because we don't know who's going to win. and And- It's amazing when you watch it because it's still riveting. And it's two
0: Americans against two Argentines? Yeah. How how did they find Joe?
1: Well, I believe Joe probably was, he had escalated up to the top, and he was the most well-known writer at that time. Okay. Not to mention, he probably had the most experience in South America. Right. What they were trying to do is they were trying to catch um, brookies, the biggest brookies, and, and he had heard or they had heard that 14-pound brookies had been caught in this lake, this glacier-fed lake up in the mountains of the Andes uh, called uh, Lago uh, la Paz. It's different now, but that was the name then. And so they said, right, well, let's go have a fishing tournament and see if we can't catch a world record. That was the goal, is to catch a world record and have a fishing competition between the two sides. And that's what they did, and it goes back and forth, and they, they could use spinning, they could use fly, they could use... Um, one day it was spinning, one day it was fly, one day it was your choice. So it was a three-day competition. And it came down to the last minute, and Joe caught a five-and-a-half-pound or six-pounds uh, rookie in the last minute to win the competition for the Americans. <laughs> I know you, could, you couldn't you have written a better script. It's yeah. like, really? Come on, that's made up. But no, it's true. You can watch it and you can see it unfold before your eyes.
0: Why didn't they choose to film the show in America?
1: You know, I don't know. Maybe it's the... the uh, the drawl of something exotic like argentina nobody's been there heard uh, about it you yeah know? so it's but it was the pilot program and it did so well it
0: did the show really picked up
1: oh it 20 some years it kept going
0: did it keep switching out guests then because i know lee wolf was on it
1: occasionally so what joe was so then joe clearly is now a part of this team right so he and kirk gowdy become great mates right and Joe now becomes the fishing expert for this show. Ah. So you can watch back episodes and you'll see him with Bing Crosby, you'll see him through many, many shows doing, you know, all kinds of amazing things.
0: Was he still working with the tournament?
1: No, no. He um he stopped that because he was writing so much and he mm-hmm. was traveling so much. He was doing 75,000 miles a year. Right. Back mm-hmm. in the 50s, 60s, you know, he was he and Mary were all over the place.
0: So what happens after that?
1: Well, the in 1963, the show is going, and but he's still writing, right? Yeah, he he could have been the outdoor editor for life, but he he rejected that because he wanted to write and fish. Back in the 50s too, I, I probably skipped a bit, but in the 50s too, this fellow Joe's Joe's running the Met still then, and this fellow comes into the office, and he's a big game hunter, but he also has a house in. Livingston, I think, in Montana. Uh, now, Livingston, well, Montana in generally was not any, on any fishing map.
0: Still a cowboy country.
1: Yeah, it's yeah. just ranches. People weren't going there to fish.
0: It's kind of like North America's Argentina mm. or South America. Yeah,
1: pretty much, yeah. Mm. And this guy goes, oh, because remember, I, Joe only works half the year, right? Because yeah. the, for the fishing tournament, now he has the other half wide open. Because you're fishing, that tournament goes through the winter, the North American winter, right? Summertime comes. Well, nobody wants to be in South Florida. It's too hot too and hot terrible, yet. and the fish have moved on, right? This guy goes, oh, you should come up and visit me in Montana. So he does, and that's when he meets Dan Bailey. Dan Bailey introduces him to Edwin Nelson, Edwin, and Edwin hadn't been married yet to Helen yet. So they become fantastic friends, and Nelson, just to back up, is the famous Nelson Spring Creek. So in those days, nobody fished Nelson Spring Creek. It was just a creek that they used to feed their livestock, Okay. And this this creek runs down and into the Yellowstone. And again, nobody's fishing. And if they're fishing, they're fishing for food. Of course, yeah. Right. Joe goes out there, sees the magnificence of it, um, magnificence of it meets Dan. Dan says, you got to meet Edwin. You got to go fish Nelson Spring Creek, which it wasn't called back then. It was just their Spring Creek, blah, blah, blah. And they ask Edwin if they can come back the next year and stay on the farm because Joe soul <laughs> I can just walk out and just fish fantastic, natural and brilliant and whatever, you know, and he just saw gold. And so Edwin goes, okay, that's fine. Well, Edwin, Edwin gets married and says, oh, I got some bad news for you. You can't stay in the house that I promised you, but we have this other outhouse on the farm you can stay in. But it's a bit rugged because that's, that's the rancher's sort of, you know, the, yeah, the rancher's uh, outhouse. He goes, that's fine. And it was pretty rough. But anyway, that's where they stay. And they did that for the next... 30 years or something, but they didn't stay in that, you know, f- five years they stayed there and then they stayed somewhere else. But anyway, he'd go back every uh, summer and fish out to October and then go back to South Florida or went in Richmond because he moved to Richmond.
0: So he really was well-versed in both the fresh and the salt, and he's going yeah. back and forth.
1: But the thing is, there's a couple things too. He's writing about Montana.
0: Uh, who was writing about Montana before him?
1: Nobody, because nobody knew about Montana before him. They called him, the the state of Montana gave him an honorary certificate, Mr. Montana.
0: Unbelievable.
1: For not only what he did in tourism, but what he did in conservation, because they wanted to dam the Yellowstone up during the days of the great damming of all the fantastic waterways. And he was one of the proponents against against it, pardon me, and used his, I guess, star power or whatever you want to call it. Yeah to help stop that. Now, he died before it all came to, uh, to a climax, but his efforts helped, let's just put it that way. So he had a lot of involvement in Montana that a lot of people don't realize. But again, there is another industry built on somebody years and years ago that nobody knows about, maybe some of the old timers do that you've mentioned before, that they have their livelihoods. They'd be painting bridges or something, but they have their livelihoods because of Joe Brooks.
0: I should hope people and guides who live and work and fish in Montana have heard of Joe Brooks. You'd hope so. I would be well and truly surprised. Yeah, I mean, even even in my house, our library is full of Joe Brooks books. I I think that you'd be surprised about how many people know about Joe Brooks, but just in case anyone listening hasn't for some reason heard of Joe Brooks... Now now you know. Yeah. If you don't know, now you know. <laughs> now
1: you're going to know. <laughs> right. And if you want to watch, you can see it on television.
0: So let's talk about, we'll, we'll get to that. Um, yeah. And I will also post when the documentary is airing. Yeah. But let's just keep going through it. Let's just get to the timeline. So okay. this is over the next 30 years, you said?
1: Yeah, till his death. He was going up there. Matter of fact, he died... Upstream, like he wanted to fly fishing. He, he had a heart attack while on the, fishing. Yeah,
0: I didn't know that.
1: But that's way down the yeah, line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. we'll back up. Okay. So we're in the um, so we're in the fifties, and and he's. I know we've moved up to the sixties a bit with the American sportsman. We'll just to backtrack about Montana because sure, sure. he put he he made Montana become relevant into the minds of Americans that were fly fishermen. Right. And that grew that industry just like it did in in Argentina. Right. And he sort of did that wherever he went. Like he'd go to New Zealand or he came to Australia and he wrote about it. And that's really, that's really what he did. He would go to these crazy places in Africa, right? And he'd come back and he'd write about it. And he was writing in the, the key magazines of the time. There were people that were listening because if Joe Brooks said it, then it must be gospel truth and I want to do what he's doing.
0: He's like a 20th century Zane Gray. When was Zane, yeah. Zane Gray?
1: Yeah, he was, he was probably early, early 1900s, yeah.
0: Was he before Zane Gray? No, Joe Zane was, Grey was Joe after was.
1: Joe after, yeah. But Zane Grey was a big blue water type guy. Yeah,
0: yeah. He
1: wasn't on the streams and and things like that.
0: Well, he was in New Zealand. Was he? Okay. But I wonder I wonder if Joe ever read any of that stuff.
1: For sure. For sure he would have read that, because that's probably the only person you could read. Maybe <laughs> Zane Grey and, and, you know. So anyway, so so he's now uh, going into television with Kirk Gowdy, yeah. because Kirk Gowdy wants the best guy that everybody knows, so that would have been Joe at the time. And then Joe becomes the fishing expert for the American Sportsman Show. Lee would have come in, just to give you a bit of context, Lee would have come in when Joe died. That was 1972. Okay. So now we're doing the American Sportsman Show. Joe is the, the, the fishing expert for the show, and he does that up to his death in, in 1972. But he's writing his books, right? So he's written 10 books. His first book was Bass Bug Fishing, which was the, basically the first book on catching bass with a fly rod ever written. Mm -hmm. His second book is Saltwater Fly Fishing, which is the first book ever written on fishing in saltwater, that many, many people still use today as the the go-to book for how to catch fish in saltwater. And all the flies are gonna be the same, right? The fish haven't changed. They're still chasing something that looks like something they'd eat, right? Bait fish or crabs or whatever. And so he goes on and he writes, culminating with uh, trout fishing, I believe was his last book in 1972. Yeah, and then he then he um, he dies. But remember, he had set up back in the '40s. He had set up the with other fellows the the Brotherhood of the Jungle Cock, which is basically it's a campfire that happens on the third weekend or the second weekend in May every year. And this this was set up in order to pass on to the next generation the notion of stewardship of the environment, conservation, looking after, and appreciating the out of doors. Mm-hmm and this has been going on since 1940 1941 or 42 somewhere in there i believe and it
0: still exists still
1: going today yeah and when joe was doing all those 75,000 miles a year he would never miss one of those campfires he was always there i think it comes out in the film and that that was one of the things that he was most proud of
0: let's talk about the film a little bit okay obviously now listen <laughs> i know a little bit about television not a lot about Documentaries. Yeah. But I would imagine you're not making much, if any, money off of this. No, it's, we're <laughs> losing money. Okay. That, <laughs> in that's, a business that's sense. Tiptoeing around. Yeah. 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 So you're doing this out of, uh, out of the passion and because obviously, like Joe, you want to follow in footsteps in the way of helping other people or, you know, letting a legacy live on or, or helping inspire people and really just telling his story. Mm. Look, I'm going to be totally honest with you. Okay. I'm not going to beat around the bush. When I hear people doing any sort of documentary about someone in their past, the first thing that comes to my mind is, what do they want out of it? Is it money? Is it notoriety? What are they getting out of it? Upon meeting you, it's obvious that it's neither of those things. You're mm-hmm. obvious, It's very, very clear in meeting you why you're doing this. It's obviously right. very genuine.
1: We're doing this for you know, many, as you do anything, you do it for many reasons. Um, one, because uh, Joe was so close to my dad. Yeah. So that's really cool. The other thing too is for the fly fishing community, right? Just to hey, here's a historical piece. You may not know about this guy, but you know what? If if you're a passionate fly fisherman, you should. Yeah. You know, you don't have to, you know, think about it too much, but it's just something if you're passionate, it'd be important to you.
0: I love that. I think I get the feeling like you genuinely feel like like not that many people know about Joe. And I'm so excited for what I know is about to come your way because you're about to be inundated and flooded with people who are very big
1: fans of Joe Brooks. Okay, well, yeah, like I don't know. Again, <laughs> yeah, I have no idea. But just back to your last point, I just want everybody to know that Mike and I are not about, you know, we both have our own businesses. and It's not about money. It's really just... just this giving we well, we want to give it to every you know to the fly fishing uh, people but also we've started a foundation that is the Joe Brooks Foundation for um outdoor education and conservation so what we're trying to do with this is also to raise funds and it's a non-for-profit organization so we're also trying to raise funds to put into the kitty that we can use then for outdoor education of the next generation and conservation work just like These were the two things that Joe was passionate about, and you can see it through his whole life. And we want to keep that legacy going, and we we can do that by everybody, you know, putting their hand to the to the plow and helping out in any way you can. And so that's what we're trying to do as well with this with this documentary. But we want everybody to know that we're not making a dime from this. This is not about us trying to make a dime off Joe's name. It's the absolute opposite. (laughs)
0: And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to leave a review about Anchored online.